Uh, Jesus didn't have a problem with people that was in the streets. He had a problem with religious people. How can I help anybody when I'm not even when I was not even able to help my own son? I would never do that. I would never do that. And I became that in a matter of minutes when they took my pain pills away. And I said, I'm not where I want to be. But thank God I'm not what I used to be. Ugh. This is Faith in Your Recovery. I am Randy Davis. Welcome to the battle. We're glad to have you with us here in Faith in Your Recovery. Have a special guest today, a gentleman I've known for a few years. I know he's been really active in the in the field of recovery. We've become good friends. He's got a lot to offer. We're going to hear from him. Welcome, Jason Padgett. Thank you very much, Randy. We're glad to have Jason with us. Hey, Jason, I know this for a fact. You've got a little military background, right? I do. I spent a little time in the United States Marine Corps Reserves. Yes. What was that time frame? Where did you serve? What was your military, you know, role? Uh, so I was an admin. They kind of tricked me into going into admin. Uh, I, I wasn't doing too well at IU prior to going in, and uh, drugs and alcohol had kind of taken me down the wrong path. I wanted to get cleaned up, and I'd always thought Marine Corps boot camp would be a great challenge. So I think it was 1992 I joined the United States Marine Corps and was, went away for about 11 months for training and then came back and served out of Indianapolis uh, in the reserve unit there at the Whitewater or uh, White River Naval Reservery. Was it the challenge you expected it to be, more or less? I absolutely loved it, I'll be honest with you. It was a great challenge. I tried to go active duty once I realized how much I enjoyed it. And at the time, we were between the two Gulf conflicts, and they really wanted more reservists than they did active duty people. If I had it to do all over again, I would have gone infantry, probably some kind of special forces, and gone as a career Marine. Well, thank you for your service. Much appreciated. Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, during what you were sharing with us right there, you said you had some some challenges with drugs, alcohol. Tell us a little about that, please. Yeah, I sure. I come from uh, an English family that uh, has alcohol has always been a part of everything that we ever did on both sides of my, of my family. Uh, it doesn't seem like there were many treatment center alcoholics, but some pretty functional alcoholics until I came along. But uh, I had all throughout high school and whatnot, I didn't really drink much. I would, I didn't want to get in any trouble, so I would go out with my friends in the woods once in a while. And when we did drink, we drank a lot. But I, my ambition was to go to Indiana University and get my PhD in psychology, and then work for the FBI uh, as a as a profiler. And the one I, I really looked down on drugs when I was in high school, but the one drug that always sparked my interest because of my love of psychology was LSD. Oh. And I thought, someday when I'm 70 years old, I'm going to try that just to see what it's like. Well, I took a semester off school off school before I went to IU, and I was at a Noblesville High School football game, and somebody offered me some LSD. And being a teenager, I thought, well, what the hell? I was going to try it when I'm 70. I'll just try it right now. And that really was a defining moment in my life. I did just a whole 180 and started living life just to party, just to experience whatever I could, whatever drugs I could get my hand on, I would I would do. Um, went to IU, but I only lasted about three semesters. They didn't offer a degree in cocaine and alcohol abuse, you know, much to, to my dissatisfaction. They asked me to leave. So I, once I joined the Marine Corps, I got away from the drugs for the most part. However, Drinking is not really looked down on in the Marine Corps. And so it became kind of the norm. And then I spent the next, until I was 32 years old, I, I was, I don't think I was sober much at all. That's a lot of years under the influence of one or the other. It yes. Is. What, 
what what was it that kept moving you deeper and deeper into all of that, Jason? I don't know. I think I always say drugs and alcohol have a very uh, – it's kind of like a, a frog in boiling water type of effect, right? When you first do it, you think, wow, that was a lot of fun. Maybe I want to try that again. Eventually, you start to think, you know what? I don't really care what I'm doing. As long as I got a buzz, I'm having fun. And then that progresses to the point of I'm not going to do anything unless drugs and alcohol are involved. And eventually, you wake up one day, or at least I did, where you, with this inherent belief inside yourself that you can't exist without that substance, that life without that substance is not ever going to be possible for you. And I took it to the point of, of liver failure, to a point where I couldn't imagine life with or without alcohol, and, and just about died from it. Wow. What about the losses, the bridges that were burnt, the relationships that were broken during that time? So... There were some. I, I, right when I got out of the Marine Corps, or right when I got out of boot camp, my girlfriend at the time got pregnant, and we had a baby and got married for about ten months, and then she didn't approve of my drinking, and they kind of slowed my drinking down, and we split up, and I have always been estranged from that daughter. Um, she she ended up joining the Navy. We talk sometimes, but that really has been a huge burden on that relationship. As soon as she and I split up, I left Indianapolis on a one-way ticket to Los Angeles, California, with 100 bucks in my pocket. And I spent from that time when I was 22, 23 years old until I was 32 years old and came back for treatment, traveling around, doing everything from commercial fishing to working in restaurants, living in youth hostels. So most of the relationships I had were either really temporary or there were people that drank just like I did. Okay. That time there, you say L.A., right? Yep. L.A. is where it started. Yeah. There in L.A., was it more? Was the money more for the habit or to survive or to survive and it ended up going to the habit? It was, a little, little. It was a little bit of both. When I went out there, I thought that I had a job working on a yacht out of Marina Del Rey. And when I got there, the guy said, I already hired somebody else. And I said, well, I spent the whole 60 of the $100 I have on a hotel last night. I have 40 bucks in my pocket and no way home. What am I going to do? And he said, go check into a youth hostel. Well, I had no idea what a youth hostel was. But I looked one up and it ended up at a youth hostel in Venice Beach that was a little ways off the beach that just so happened to be kind of the place where foreigners from England and Australia and a lot of those those European countries who wanted to stay in L.A. but didn't have visas made long-term homes. So I spent two and a half years living at and, and working the desk at a hostel. So it didn't really cost me much to, to do anything other than the drinking and partying that I did with all them. And I waited tables down on Venice Beach to cover that. So I, I just was pretty much scratching to cover my expenses at the time. Not trying to cover for any of that, but Venice Beach is not the worst place in the world to be. It's, you know what? It's an awesome place to be a young drunk because nobody notices at all. <laughs> I mean, there's people walking around with flaming hair and six-foot iguanas <laughs> on their shoulders juggling chainsaws. Nobody cared what some hick from Indiana was doing drinking a fifth of vodka a day. You were almost invisible in that respect. I was. Yeah, yeah. So how, what was the lights on moment that moved you out of L.A. into a different part of your life? Not just geographically, but as far as moving forward in a positive way. Well, at the time, I got, I got a really good friend who was from the island of Jersey and had served in the British Royal Navy. He was about 20 years older than me, but he drank like me, and he kind of had that marine type ugh, to him. And, and we both 
were at a point where our our health was starting to show that we were drinking as much as we were. We were gaining weight. We just weren't feeling very well. And he said, mate, why don't we go try commercial fishing in Alaska? And so we did. And that the first trip was a bust. It was salmon season and there weren't any salmon running. And we blew all our money in Seattle before we went out there and had to hitchhike back to L.A. But we didn't give up and we went back. And for, we ended up spending a couple of years really uh, – Getting healthier. I mean, you go out for 120, 120 days at a time and then come back for a month or two. We'd burn through that money partying in either Seattle or L.A. But still, most of our time was out on the ocean with no drugs or alcohol. And that was. And then I read The Perfect Storm, and the movie wasn't out yet, but I thought, I got to go do that. And so then I ended up going over to the East Coast and commercial fishing for a couple of years for swordfish. And then I ended up back in the Gulf of Mexico um, with a captain that, or the boat owner wanted to do some grouper fishing. And, you know, in Alaska, it was no drugs and alcohol in the boat or any of the time that you were doing it. Maybe some partying when you weren't there. And when I got out to the East Coast, it was more we'd take a pallet of beer with us and we would drink while we were out. And those guys did a lot of heroin. And uh, the East Coast, that's, that was pretty big even back then. Uh, but when we got down to the Gulf of Mexico, most of the most of the people that I was associated with commercial fishing were crack smokers, and we would go out for four or five days, catch some grouper, come back, smoke crack, go back. So I I got back to drinking heavily at the time. I've never been a big crack smoker. No offense to anybody who is, but it just wasn't wasn't my gig. Um, and I, I really disliked the fact that we weren't making enough money to even live. We were just partying for a couple of days, going out and being sick on the ocean, and then coming back. So I got off the boat and went back to the restaurant industry in Florida, and that was when the drinking escalated again. Wow. So uh, sounds like you've had opportunities for anything and everything as far as the drug and travel. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Was that was that travel, do you think, within you one of the ways of hunting, you know, for a different life, a better life, or was it just what had to be at that moment? I will say, and I think even before the drugs and alcohol, I had a misconception as a young person that if, to lay down on my deathbed at whatever age it was and look back and think that I lived a fulfilling life, it needed a lot of extreme experiences. Life needed to be about experiences. And I think I even joining the FBI, had I done that, was kind of chasing that kind of thing. Uh, but once I found the drugs and alcohol, it was just kind of easier to have the experience no matter where I was initially. So... As I as I progress through life, I realize that life is much more about the relationships and the people in your life. So my first sponsor was was a producer of the Bob and Tom Show when I was an alcoholics anonymous, and and you know he had lived his whole life in Indiana, had a great house, had all this. But when he would hear me tell these stories, he would always say, "Man, I wish I would have gone and done all that stuff." And I think. It, I, I don't. I didn't really gain that much from doing all that. I was just drunk in a bunch of different places. You know, I didn't have all those years, those fifteen years of building relationships and building a family, and and I missed a lot of that. Now I've gained a lot of it since sobriety, but I did miss a lot of that. So you were lost within any given location, and uh, it just wasn't the fulfillment that you'd hoped for. Or, you know, you were searching for. No, not at all. And, you know, I honestly would start drinking. When I was out at that hostel, I was a beer drinker when I was younger, and I drank a lot of beer. But there, I remember there was a Polish guy whose dad had been a KGB agent. He was just kind of a weird, quiet guy. And one morning I got up about 7 o'clock in the morning and was going outside, and he said, Oi, American Marine, come here. 
Why you, and excuse my language, but he said, why you drink beer with all those Australian pussies? Real men drink vodka. And from that day until the, when I was 32, unless I was out on the ocean, I didn't, I didn't draw a sober breath. And from the time I woke up to the time I went to bed, I had a bottle of vodka in my hand. Wow. Uh, totally consuming for you at yes. that point. Yes. Yes. All right. Tell us how you moved to a lights-on moment that, you know, jolted you forward. Well, and this will get somewhat into the journey and struggle that I've had with faith over the years. So awesome. I, I wasn't raised religious at all. My family just didn't go to church. Uh, I can remember my dad th- saying at one point in time that he passed a college course at Ball State, a uh, religion course, by answering the one question, what is God, by saying God is an emotional crutch. That, that was kind of what I grew up with. And so... When I came toward the end of my drinking, uh, in high school, I was big in martial arts. So I did get into Buddhism and some Eastern stuff, but it was not theologically based at all. There was no God involved, uh, just more meditation and type thing. So as I progressed at my drinking and I got to that point where I couldn't imagine life with or without alcohol, I will tell you that uh, Christianity saved my life because I really wanted to kill myself at that point in time. And I can just remember thinking, I'm not the most intelligent man in the world. There are a lot of religions out there. What if the Christians are right? And if I commit suicide, I'm going to spend the rest of my life in hell, probably worse than what I'm living right now. And that kept me from killing myself. Uh, I was living for the last seven or eight years with a woman who was about 30 years older than me in a really weird relationship, but she was a good telemarketer. She drank a lot, but she would keep the lights on and, and keep, keep everything going even when I was too sick and drunk to work. So eventually I was on the couch for about three months, I think, unable to get off the couch, and she finally let the codependency go and called my parents and said, your son's dying. Will you come out here and get him? And that was in Phoenix, Arizona. They got me and brought me back here and put me in the Anderson Center St. John. And uh, from there, tell us how the journey continued, your faith journey as well as your recovery journey, Jason. Yeah, the faith journey has actually been a really big part of it. It's been a struggle with a lot of it. Um, so when I, when I was at the Anderson Center, um, which is just around the corner here, which got kind of gets me choked up, but um, the, the psychiatrist there, I, I <clears throat> the Little Red Book, which is a non-Alcoholics Anonymous uh, version of the Alcoholics Anonymous book was sitting next to my bed. And I read Bill Wilson's story, which is the first chapter of, of the AA big book. And I was kind of getting into it. And then Bill had that moment in Towns Hospital when he felt the light of the Lord and, and it felt like he was standing on a mountain and the wind blew through him and God, he, he came to God and God came to him. And I, and I was like, okay, this, that's not for me. And uh, as I was getting ready to leave, the psychiatrist said, you're going to have to go to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. And, you know, one thing that I love about the recovery landscape today is that there are a lot of choices. Alcoholics Anonymous is not the only one. It's, it is a great one. It saved millions of lives, uh, mine included. But I would have had the opportunity 16 years ago to explore a lot of different options. You know, there's refuge recovery, which is Buddhist-based, or smart recovery, which is not secular at all. It's simply psychology-based. Well, at the time, there was Alcoholics Anonymous. And he sa- I said, that's not for me. I'm not into the God stuff. And he said, you're going to be dead if you pick up another drink. And the only, the only choice you have is to join Alcoholics Anonymous. So I did, kicking and screaming. 
Uh, moved in with the, my father, who I had had a horrible relationship most of my life. Some because I think my mom suffered from some bipolar disorder and kind of skewed me against him, and some because I was just kind of a jerk when I was young. Uh, you know, he's one of my best friends today, but I moved in with him and uh, started working on the golf course maintenance crew with him and and going to Alcoholics Anonymous. And, um, man, I fought the, the God thing for just tooth and nail in Alcoholics Anonymous. I got really involved in some of the some of the service committees in AA, and that was really what kept me in Alcoholics Anonymous. I served as a chair and a co-chair of school talks committees and treatment facilities committees and public relations committees, and so I, I really started to work in this industry in a volunteer aspect while I was while I was waiting tables to make money. And uh, a funny story. So when I was the chairman of the school talks committee, we went for the first school we talked at was Carmel. And uh, there's a lot of good looking teachers at Carmel, right? So I was 33 years old, I think, and we left and, uh, and I started thinking about it. I, I just, I took the traditions and I, AA so seriously that I, I thought about it and I made this vow to myself that I would never be unprofessional or try to hit on a teacher or anything while I was serving Alcoholics Anonymous. All right. About a year later, I also got involved with the Indiana Conference for Young People in Alcoholics Anonymous, which really opened my eyes to the fact that you can have fun and be sober. And they they changed. They changed me and my recovery forever. Like we would just go camping and fishing and canoeing and go to conferences and just we did all kinds of stuff. People who were ages 18 to 45 years old, just insisting on having fun and recovery. And Hope Academy, which is the charter high school for kids with drug and alcohol problems uh, in Indianapolis, had us come in and start working with their students. And there was an English teacher there who was in recovery, who was really pretty. And, uh, yeah. and, and one of the coworkers that knew both of us said, this, this girl's from Hartford City. She's, uh, she's new in town. You should introduce her to people in Alcoholics Anonymous. So I asked her to go to a volleyball tournament with us. And all of a sudden, I was having this huge guilt thing. Like, I was like, I'm breaking my promise. Like, I know that I am attracted to this woman, and yeah, I'm going under the guise of alcohol. So I called her up, and I, I told her this whole dilemma. From outside the restaurant I worked at, on a break. And she said, well, that's okay. I'd love to go on a date with you. And uh, we've been married for 12 years. <laughs> I have two wonderful stepchildren, and uh, we have an 11-year-old together. She has a couple more years of recovery than I do, but it has really worked out to be a beautiful. She's a social worker now. She doesn't work at Hope Academy anymore, but it's turned out to be a beautiful relationship. Awesome. That's, that's neat stuff. Thanks for your honesty, your vulnerability, yeah. and sharing from the heart. Certainly. There are people out there. Let's just try to think of some imaginary body who was where you were. What would you tell them to help them get to where you are, not to be you, but to find the spot in recovery where you are now. Well, another one of those dichotomies in my life, those things that I thought I hated that ended up being the best thing in the world for me, um, when I, I actually had a relapse at one point in time in my recovery, and I ended up at, at, uh, at Home with Hope in Lafayette. And one of my good friends who'd been working in treatment was running it, and he knew all the things I'd done in Alcoholics Anonymous. And when I got better, he said, I want to put you to work in recovery. I don't want you to work in the restaurant industry anymore. I want I can see you doing like director development work and this and that, but first I need you to do something that I can pay you for, that I can bill for. I want you to go become a recovery coach. 
And I said, no way in Hades am I going to be, I don't like sponsorship. I don't like, like, that's not my thing. Direct services is not, I'm not doing it, you know, but he made me. And that just opened my eyes to this whole new recovery movement that's come out of the East Coast since the 19, since the late or early 1990s with Faces and Voices of Recovery. And the idea that, you know, there are multiple pathways to recovery and they're all a cause for celebration. The idea that you're in recovery when you say all these things that they came up me i would if i was if i was to suggest to someone today who needed help i would say go find a certified peer and they're the indiana recovery network 211 line they can call the 211 line and find peers in their community anywhere because what you get is you get an individual who has that lived experience but who has also been trained on connecting people to resources and on saying hey what does recovery look like for you and how can I help you get there? That's the big difference between, and again, I never want to sound like I'm putting down Alcoholics Anonymous, but the 12-step model has saved billions of lives, but there are a few flaws that I see within it. And one of them is that whole insistence of you're either going to do exactly what I did or you're dead or you're not going to make it. Well, a lot of different people come from different cultures, different backgrounds, different belief systems. So why not encourage someone to follow a recovery pathway that aligns with all those things? Absolutely. There are those folks who have been through such regimented lives that they're going to rebel against it. Yep. That a parent or somewhere along the line for them, somebody had them towing the line so tightly they couldn't look to the left or to the right without some sort of negative reinforcement on it that we simply need to know there's no one path. Uh, we're all so different. You know, nobody else has ever traveled your journey. And I'm guessing you wouldn't want anybody else <laughs> to travel your journey. No, probably not. But it, it, this is a shameless plug for a better life, Brandis Hope. But this is one of the way, this is one of the places where I see the multiple pathways in Brandis Hope really, really change my recovery. Because I told you I had that relapse. The relapse came from leaving Alcoholics Anonymous on a search for God. I married a Catholic girl. I just couldn't handle, I loved Catholic Church, but I couldn't handle that. I didn't feel like I had a connection with God. And I started running and, and reciting prayers when I ran because meditation and chanting was a little bit more familiar to me. And eventually that didn't, that didn't connect me with God personally, and, but I got obsessed with running. And I ended up running a 50-mile race and, and getting some injury and getting hooked on painkillers. Well, and then going back to drinking. Well, come back. So now, now I'm back in recovery, and I'm still wanting to explore faith-based recovery. All right. And today, sitting here today, I love celebrate recovery. I would I love going to celebrate, but it is very evangelical. Right. So when I went and checked out celebrate recovery, I was like, this is a bit much for me. And somebody said, why don't you try a better life, Brandis Hope? And when I went into that Lafayette, a better life, Brandis Hope, I really found that. Brianna's Hope did what it said. They led with love and compassion, and they didn't really care what your belief was. They just believed in you and a better life. And that was kind of my stepping stone into embracing and being extremely comfortable in Christian faith-based recovery. Folks, a better life, Brianna's Hope, is our... The hub of this wheel, and this is one of those spokes as we present this podcast, and one of our desires has been to be an other 
choice to where we offer it a little differently than anybody else, not better than or less than, but in a different way because we've recognized we all have different tastes. We all have different behavior styles. And many of our folks kind of, I think you're just saying there, Jason, come to us in a very raw state. Mm -hmm. We're oftentimes that first step, so we don't want to overwhelm them with some sort of rigid plan. We do have guidelines, expectations, but we're flexible. So, yeah, that's simply one of the things that sets us apart, not above, but apart. I'm glad you found that and that you've become a part of it. Go ahead. Tell us a little more about where you're at and what you're doing now and what your life looks like, Jason. Well, things really took off wonderfully after that. You know, I, I did struggle for about two or three years once I relapsed. I would never I would never recommend relapse to anyone. It's How very... long ago was that relapse? It's been four or five years ago. Okay, now. that's close enough. Thank you. I bounced in and out of seven or eight treatment centers, three recovery residences, uh, in and out of my house. It was, it wasn't until Tad grabbed me and said, "I want to put you to work in recovery," that I really refound my recovery. I, there's one thing in the peer world that I disagree with. They, I, I often times hear people say that your job is not your recovery. Your job may not be all of your recovery, but it is a hell of a big component to a lot of us who are peers. Because uh, I work with other people who are in recovery. We talk about recovery all the time. We encourage each other all the time to have good self-care. We're very in tune with each other. If something's off, we'll, you know, we're, we're the first to say, hey, man, what's going on? Like, do you need to talk? Do you need to escalate to something more than talk? Do you need to see uh, several of my team have gone to see clinicians since I've been working with them? So so that getting into recovery supports really changed everything for me. And I, I was a recovery coach for Home With Hope for a little while, and then I always had a desire to work with teenagers. Um, I, I work in the Lafayette hour area, and the Working with teenagers with substance use has never really taken off very well there. I think, uh, well, even a metropolitan area like Indianapolis, Hope Academy only has about 50 students at a time. So, uh, but I met uh, the who is now the uh, the district superintendent of the United Methodist Church was running Grace United Methodist at the time and a better life, Brianna's Hope, and she and I sat down and talked about all this recovery-oriented systems of care and stuff. And she helped me to start a 501c3 not-for-profit Grace Recovery with a component of a an adolescent program and that for a couple years was wonderful a wonderful experience um, eventually the, our county got uh, some grant money to do what they, what's called a quick response team which is sending EMTs out with uh, with peers and they tried to pull me back into the peer world and I, I said oh no I don't I want to work with teenagers but, but I, I I remember saying I will I'm one of the only peers in Lafayette so I don't mind building my resume. If you want me to supervise this team, you know, my ego got to me a little bit. If you want me to supervise this team, I could probably give you six hours a week doing that. And after two weeks of doing that, it had exploded so much that it became my full-time job <laughs> and has become an amazing program that covers nine counties. The EMS agency that we work out of, the Nate Metz, who's our CEO, is just the most innovative 30-something guy. We give each other a hard time about being Gen X's and Millennials, but he is just so innovative and so he cares so much about people that we have built a very robust peer support program 
And I've been a part of that for since its inception for about four years now. Jason, as I've heard you share your story, every time you say, I don't want to do that, I'm not about to, it seems like you end up doing that. Yes. Uh, there could be a lesson in there somewhere. <laughs> there could be, yes. There could be. <laughs> well, you've learned it whether you admit it or not because you're willing to to budge and to move to another, you know, to another opportunity and privilege, uh, and I have no doubt you've impacted more lives than you'll ever know. I appreciate that. What has been the highlight of all of that for you in just, you know, a few words, a sentence or two? Uh, I think seeing the idea, I, I'm a big lover of William White, the other Bill White, William L. White, and the idea that there are multiple pathways to recovery and they're all cause for celebration. To see us begin to embrace that as a society has been very touching to me. Coming here today, one of the questions I was going to ask was, what do you see as society's greatest need when it comes to recovery in the battle with drugs, addiction, substance use disorder? And I think you just touched on that, that idea there. There's room for all of us, yeah. and all of us are needed. And unfortunately, there are more clients and people struggling than we're ever going to be able to meet the needs of anyway. So keep the competition out of it unless we're competing together, not against, but together. Does that fit for you? I don't want to put words in your mouth. A hundred percent. Collaboration is one of my favorite words. I also think the recovery community, that's one of the, one of the things. I've become a part of that is really a highlight of my year every year is the Tippecanoe Celebration of Recovery, which is our annual recovery event. And the whole idea behind it of uh, behind it is that we can all have our own pathways to recovery and we can respect those pathways, but there's no reason why we can't come together as a people, as a as a group of recovering people on a regular basis and advocate for recovery and celebrate the fact that we're all in recovery. Whether you're on Suboxone and I go to celebrate recovery and she's on methadone and he goes to Alcoholics Anonymous, like, who cares? We're all healthier than we were. When we entered when we entered recovery, and the recovery journey is is not a linear one. It's a, and it's a long one. So celebrating everybody and where they're at in that process, I think, is very important. I think that's not only important for those who are in recovery, but for our community. Agreed. To see that we can get along, we have something in common, and that's recovery. That's another healthy day. That's a better day tomorrow than the one we had today. After we get to tomorrow. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, Jason, as you're well aware of, the the title of this podcast is "Faith in Your Recovery." What do those four words mean to you? I thought about that a little bit on the way here. So I, where am I at today with, with that? Um, well, I didn't think I was ever going to be able to run again. And I've lost about 70 pounds in the last seven Congratulations. months. Congratulations. Thank you. And I'm back to running on the treadmill, but I'm up to like 10 miles at a time. So I'm an extremist. I still want to run a 100-miler one day. Uh, but the, where that relates to God is the, the time that I've been closest to and actually talked to God the most has always been when I'm running. <laughs> and... Uh, and that has that has continued and picked back up now that I've now that I've started. I, I also love meditation and yoga and things like that. And I have a tendency to to kind of split my time between 
talking to God and and doing like what I would call traditional meditation of trying to clear my mind when I'm doing that. But when I'm running, I, I use I spend a lot of time talking to God. So my belief today is. Uh, uh, I, I I believe in my heart and I actually feel that there is a God out there. Um, I don't know that I will ever come to the intellectual understanding that man's idea of God, whether you're talking Islamic, Christian, or anything else, that there's a right one. But I do believe that God exists and that he has our well-being in mind and that we can communicate with that and try to align ourselves with that in a way that will will better ourselves and all of those around us. As you're sharing that, I'm thinking of the idea of faith. If we had all those answers, we wouldn't need faith. (laughs) Uh, We could rely on the fact, but I think faith will take us much farther than any fact when it comes to our recovery, when it comes to our spiritual growth. It's interesting that you mentioned the idea of running and how much that means to you. A guest that we had just a couple of three weeks ago while she was in prison, Charmin Gabbard, she talked about this on our episode. That is where she came into relationship with God, was running while in prison. Uh, You know, in the gym there, whatever the case may have been, I don't recall for sure. She continues to run marathons, I don't know, half dozen, maybe eight or ten a year, all kinds of running events with her son. And each time that is her spiritual high as well as her recovery high. Yeah. Yeah. We all need those moments. So is there anything else you'd like to share we haven't touched on or a word of advice or a word of caution or anything you'd like to give to strugglers out there who are hunting for a path that will work for them? I would say another thing that is really the highlight of my recovery has been having a family and having being close to a family and learning to not be selfish and just be a part of a family rather than uh, rather than demanding everything from everyone, which I think a lot of us who kind of grew up with addiction kind of that's just kind of how how we viewed the world for a while. But um, I really frame my recovery today around the four dimensions of recovery. I, I, it's, I'm not big on cliches, but it's one of the ones I love. Health, home, community, and purpose. I, I, I can remember when I was like two years sober, my best friend in Alcoholics Anonymous talking about how he was getting some balance in his life. And I can remember telling him, I don't ever want balance in my life. Like I still had that extreme mindset. I wanted extreme this extreme. Today, at 48, with a little bit more wisdom, balance in those four areas is really what I try to focus on. Is my mental and physical health up to par, right? Because if I'm mentally unhealthy, I'm real quick to go back to a drink. If I'm physically unhealthy, I'm miserable and a drink starts sounding good. So am I mentally, physically, spiritually healthy? What is my home life like? And for people who are not quite into recovery, that may just mean, are you in safe, sober housing, right? But eventually that becomes, what is it like inside my house? Because you know as well as I do, being married for as many years as you have, an unhappy wife is an unhappy life, right? And, Amen. And I am a big part of unhappy wife, usually, whether I want to admit it or not. <laughs> I understand that. <laughs> so health, home, community, that's the one thing that I would just really encourage people who are getting into recovery is you can never have too big of a community, right? I see too many people who go down a 12-step path or a certain path, and that's their community, and that's their only community for the rest of their life. And that that's okay, 
but I think you'll live a more flourishing, fulfilling life if you have a church community and a recovery community in it. If you can get involved in as big a part of the community, giving back to the community as you can, uh, you you will reap the benefits of that. I would rather throw rice at the target than a single stone. I throw that rice, I may hit with a half dozen pieces. I throw that stone, I've only got one chance. As you're talking about the importance of family, I immediately connect that to community. And as you said, don't limit that community. It's okay to get some outside influence of what even is is important to you. If we don't have those challenges, we're not asking ourselves the right question. Sure it is. And I think that ties into the last piece, which is purpose. And a lot of people, uh, I think... I think it's wonderful to explore what your purposes in life are when you get into recovery. You know, maybe it's art, maybe it's music, maybe it's maybe it's movies, maybe it's uh, maybe it's the non-for-profit communities, maybe it's faith, maybe it's all of those and and different things to explore. Maybe it's running. You know, I I'm just a lot healthier when I have a sense of purpose in life. Purpose is a part of the plan and a major part of it. And without it, we don't have direction, I don't think. And so purpose has become a big part of faith in your recovery. We believe in encouraging you to find that. We want to be here with you and for you until you do. And we're going to love you until you can love yourself and hope you can find that wholeness, that completeness that God wants you to have in this that you want to have. So anything before we close? Uh, I think that, that pretty much covers it for me. I want to thank you for having me here today and tell you that I'm, I, I love you as a friend and I admire you as a mentor. Well, thank you. Don't give up on yourself and don't give in to the urge. Your answer, your healing, your recovery may be in our next episode. Have faith in your recovery by having faith in yourself, your journey, and above all, God. Believe and stay in the fight.